Uh, let's begin tonight with a word of prayer. Father, we do bow before you tonight and thank you for your presence in this place today. Father, recognizing and acknowledging that you are here, not because of who we are, but you're here because of who you are. Father, I pray that you allow the Holy Spirit to reveal the truth of your word to us tonight. Help us apply that truth to our lives, not just to put things in our pockets, but to help us walk in a right relationship with you and to demonstrate your love to those around us, in our family, in our homes, when people are in our homes with us, in our community, all around the world. Father, thank you for revealing the truth of your word to us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. Uh, we are continuing in our study of Exodus chapter 34. It's God has been uh, teaching for the last, eh, the last couple of weeks, uh, two weeks actually. He thought last week that he was really going to get through 34, and that didn't happen. So um, it's my goal tonight to, to get through the rest of 34, but we'll see how far we get. So we'll trust God with that. First of all, let's go over some of the background leading up to where we are tonight in Exodus 34. Where are the people camped? At the foot of Mount Sinai. What kind of things have taken place while they've camped at the, at the foot of Mount Sinai? Where has Moses been, for example? He's been up on the mountain. In whose presence? Yeah, God's. And what has he received from God? The law. While Moses was receiving the law, what was going on at the foot of Mount Sinai with the people? Huh? Yeah, grumbling. They didn't like what was going on. And what did Aaron then allow the people to do? Right, Brent, say it again. Yeah, he made the golden calf. First of all, he let them loose. And then they said, oh, we need a golden calf because we want a God that doesn't rumble and make the ground tremble and fire come out of the mountain. We're terrified of that kind of God. So we want a God that, yeah, it's got ears and eyes and a mouth, but doesn't say anything. It's a little bit more pleasant to deal with. So they made a golden calf. Moses comes down from the mountain after having received the law. He's carrying the tablets. And what does he do? The first thing that he, what's the first thing that he does when he gets to the bottom of the mountain? He smashes the Ten Commandments, which is symbolic of what? Okay, the people did what? Yeah, the people broke the covenant. So the law was smashed. All right. Then, he ta then Moses takes the golden calf and he does what with it? Yeah, he burns it, grinds it up, puts it in the water and tells the people to drink it. Then he tells the Levites to do what? Take their sword and strap it on their thigh and they went and did what? Yeah, they killed how many? 3,000 of their family. Maybe their dad, maybe an uncle, maybe a sister, maybe an aunt, maybe, you know, who it was family. Killed 3,000. And then God says, y'all are going to the promised land, but what, how did he tell them they were going? Without him. Now, God has led them from Egypt. They followed him. 
Have they always followed willingly? Now, everybody do this. No. They were a stiff-necked people. Sometimes they couldn't do this. <laughs> you ever thought about that? You know, stiff-necked, you can't shake head. Um, so God says, you're going to go on without me, but then Moses intercedes for the people, and God says, okay. Now, in verses 6 and 7 that Scott covered last week, he took us through the first nine, cha- the, the first nine verses of chapter 34, and it's dealing primarily with how God refers to himself. And in verse 6, God says, the Lord, the Lord God, and then he reveals attributes about himself. What does he reveal about himself? What attributes does he tell? He's merciful. What? And gracious. What else? Okay, what else? He's abounding in steadfast love. He's faithful. Okay. As we look at these attributes, do we see a connection? Should we see a connection? Obviously, that's a leading question. We need to see a connection. What connection then? I'll make it that easy. What connection then do we see between what's revealed about the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament? What connection is there between these attributes and what we see in the New Testament? Or who is the connection? Christ. Yeah, we need to see, we must see that connection here. Okay, now, let's turn to Exodus 34. We're going to read beginning in verse 10. Um, Probably read down through verse 17 for now and see how far we get there. And in Exodus 34, verse 10. And he said, behold, that is he, he, that is God. Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation, and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of God, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down all their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram, for you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of, these, of, of his sacrifices." And you shall take of their daughters for your sons and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. Now, first of all, in verse 10. When you read verse 10, what kind of thing jumps to mind? What is God about to do? What does he say he's going to do? Say it again. He's going to make a covenant. And what kind of covenant is it going to be? What kind of things is he going to do? Marvelous things. Have you ever had a situation where you've been told you're about to receive something that you've never received before? Think about it. I want some examples. 
You're, maybe you get a, a phone call and you're about to receive something you've never received before. Todd's laughing. Huh? I never got an A. <laughs> never, never got an A. Okay. <laughs> uh, teacher calls Todd and tells him he's, tells him he's going to get an A. How would, how would that then, how would you respond to that? Be excited. Don't be rejoicing. Okay? Somebody else, come, something else. Maybe that you can actually talk about in public. I'm not even sure why I said that. We may need to edit that out. Anyway. Um, but, but think about it from that perspective. God is revealing to them, I'm going to do something that you've never seen or received before. And the people should have just been, first of all, on their knees, on their face, worshiping God. Because he said, I'm about to do something. And keep in mind that the covenant blessings of God, he's going to make a covenant with him, it's going to be a marvelous thing. The covenant blessings from God are always marvelous. Psalms 98 verse 1 says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. I think it's real important to note here that God will do what he says he's going to do every single time. There's never a doubt. When God says, this is what I'm going to do, what happens? It's what he said. You know, God is a faithful God. He's a true God. He is a just God. And it always happens exactly the way he says it's going to. There is no doubt in that. We need to, I think we need to take note here also in verse 11, where God says, observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Who's doing the work? God. Will the Hebrew people have an army? Yeah. Will they go to war? Yeah. Will they carry their sword? Yes. And their shield? Yes. And their, and their spear? Yes. But God does the work. Okay. We, we've, we've said, I say we, the elders, other teachers have said for years here at Crosspoint that God is the active agent everything that happens in our universe. And we see that here as well. God is the active agent of our salvation. God is the active agent of driving the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites out of the land. Okay? But let's take note here. I think it's important we do this. And we see this consistency in every promise that God makes in his word. When there's a promise, when there's a covenant, there are conditions. The conditions must be kept by the one that's receiving the promise. The one that's on the receiving end of the covenant. There are conditions to those. In this, we see two precepts that are the conditions of the promises from God. And we see the first precept in verses 12 and uh, actually in verse 14 but before we look at that, I think we need to look at the prequel covenant statements in, in verses 12 and 13. Here God says, Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land 
to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. So what has God warned them to do? Yeah, have no gods. And what are they to do with the altars? Tear them down. It reminds me of the story of Gideon. This just came to me a while ago, and I didn't want to write it down, so we'll just, I don't remember where it is, but y'all can look it up. Gideon goes in, and after he, after God puts him in place as, he's put him in the place as judge, one of the things that God tells Gideon to do is go tear down the altars of his father. Let that sink in for a minute. Gideon has to tear down the altars that his father left there or built. So that brings two questions to mind for me. And I want everybody to personalize this for yourself. What altars did I have to tear down of my dad's? What altars did I see in my dad's life that I had to tear down in order to walk with God more rightly? My God loved, my, my God, my dad loved the Lord. I know he did. He, he walked in that. But there were also things in my dad's life that I saw that I didn't need, that I knew I didn't need in my life. That's kind of a difficult question, but I want to hit you with a harder one. And the next question to Morris is, and you ask yourself, what altars do John and Adam have to tear down that I've had in my life? That's not easy. But it's questions that we have to ask. And that's what God is saying here. You cannot leave any altars. Doesn't matter who built them. They gotta come down. They must come down. Then we see this first precept that God lays out for him. And it's actually a restatement of something that God had said before. And in verse 14 of Exodus 34, God says, You shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. So he says, You shall worship no other God. What other verses come to mind when you see this? Have we seen this before, that statement? Huh? Yes, first commandment. In Exodus 20, verses 3 through 6, God says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above, that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Very clear. Now the second precept of the covenant is found in verse 17. Verse 17 says, You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. In case you didn't catch this, God's saying, no golden calves, period. Question mark. (laughs) Are there any questions here? Obviously not. God says, you shall not do this. Now, in these two precepts, God has created 
some boundaries, some fences around his people. Some people might see fences as barriers to fun. Okay. If you ever if you ever watched a horse um you know standing next to the edge of the pasture and there's a barbed wire there and on the other side of the barbed wire is some grass and the horse wants the grass he's he or she whichever one it is is going to press against that fence to get that just that green morsel right there and nibble it and eat it and primarily it's the same grass that the horse is standing in but it's on the other side of the fence and there's something about something on the other side of the fence that just draws us. Okay. If, if, if we look in the conclusions of Solomon and Ecclesiastes, where Solomon said, um, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What Solomon concluded in that was, uh, in fact, Chuck Swindoll makes a statement in, in one of his books about Ecclesiastes. He said, Solomon actually came up with three conclusions. One, the lure for something different is always there. You know, just wherever we are, whatever we're doing, the lure for something different is always there. And then he said the lure for something different is always strong. Strong enough that the horse wanting that morsel of grass will even cut themselves on the barbed wire to get that morsel of grass. And then the third conclusion is if you pursue that which is different apart from God, you will be destroyed. Okay. Um, if you've ever seen an animal that's tangled up in barbed wire, having fallen, it's not a pretty sight. So people will see sometimes those boundaries as barriers to what they want on the outside. But what we need to see in these two precepts, the the, the the boundaries that God set, you'll have no other gods before me and you will make no idols. Those boundaries God intended for his people to keep them on the inside and some people see that like a prison. But if you, if you see it the way God intended it, those boundaries were to keep them safe and to keep evil on the outside anybody ever been to Six Flags okay what kind of fence do they have on the outside 18 inch fence 2 foot fence how tall is the fence around Six Flags it's about a 10 foot fence okay and most people don't pay attention to the fence because they're looking at the rides. Okay. But there's a 10-foot fence around Six Flags. Some people might see those fences as, as jail bars. But what they're intended is to keep evil out. And inside those barriers are all the rides that are fun, the rides that make you scream, the rides that make you throw up. And we do that and it's all fun, you know. Kind of strange notion, but we do. God intended those boundaries to hold a stiff-necked people. And it's not about keeping bad guys out, okay? Because 
just like the Israelite people, we're all stiff-necked at times. We qualify. It's not keeping the bad guys out and the good guys in because none of us are good. But it's about holding the things that God promised, the, the wonderful things like the rides that we enjoyed, Six Flags. That's, that's what keeps that boundary there and keeps it safe. Okay? And that's what God intended these boundaries to do. Now in verses 18 through 28, God restates what he has already said as a reminder, as a basically don't forget what you've been told. Verses 18 through 28. He says, you shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib. For the month of Abib you came out from Egypt. All that opened the womb were mine, All of your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons, you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest, you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land. When you go up, when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything, un, with anything leavened or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. God outlined the feasts again. The feasts were very specific in what they were to do. The feasts were very specific meals. They were to do certain things and eat certain things, and do certain things at very specified times, and in a very specified order. Now, we may think, that's a little extreme, a little weird, I don't know if I can do that. But let's bring it into 2012. Do we have any feasts, things that we do year after year? We do the same thing. What, what kind of feast do we enjoy? Hmm? Thanksgiving. Okay, on Thanksgiving, what do we typically eat? Turkey, dressing, gone pie, green salad, that green stuff. Our boys just call it green stuff. It's actually pistachio salad, but the boys just call it green stuff. Um, right, so there's very specific things that we eat at Thanksgiving. What other feasts do we have? We only eat it Thanksgiving? Christmas. Christmas, all right. Do we do anything different on Christmas than we do on Thanksgiving? It's usually the same kind of food. Then every once in a while in Texas, we just have a Mexican Thanksgiving or something. You know, that's kind of weird, but it's, it's fun too. Is there something that we do? Now, those, those are, you know, th- those kind of feasts are 
family and family friendly and we have good times and we celebrate our families? Do we have a feast amongst us that we do to remember the Lord? Thank you. Lord's Supper. Every Sunday morning when we enjoy that meal together, we're doing that to remember God. And that's why God rem remembered and revisited the feast for the people because it was to remember God <coughs> always. So let's see that connection with the Lord's Supper that we enjoy every Sunday morning is a connection to the covenant that God gave. And he said, remember this. We need to remember that. Now, God also, not only the feast outlined, God also writes on the tablets again, and God was, was sustained for 40 days. Let's read verses 28 through 33. So he, that is Moses, was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And God wrote on the tablets the word of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with him, with them. Afterward, all of the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with him, he put a veil over his face. We'll go ahead and read 34 and 35 also. When Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he had commanded, and when he came out and told the people of Israel what he had commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak again with God. Moses was sustained for 40 days and 40 nights. He didn't eat or drink. Has anybody ever known anybody that went on a 40-day fast? Right. What happens, people, and most of us, could go 40 days and survive off the fat of the land, so to speak. But, Bill, what happens when someone goes that long without water? Okay, so Moses went... 40 days without food and water. So one of two things happens here. Either God is a liar or God did what? Yeah, God sustained him miraculously. So he kept him going for 40 days. How that happens, I don't know, but God did it. So this is not just a small event. 40 days without food and water was huge, and God did that for Moses. <clears throat> God spoke with Moses again. When Moses came down from the mountain, what condition was his face? 
It was shining to the point that the people did what? They freaked out. They ran. They didn't want to have anything to do with him. They were terrified. Has anybody here ever had an experience like that when, when God has revealed something to you or changed something in your life and you're walking with God, maybe in a way that you've never walked before, and you go to someone that you've known for a long time and they respond to almost like stepping back. Has anybody ever experienced that? People didn't want to be close to you because of what you'd experienced with God? You know, that's not about what we experience with God when that happens. That's about where they are. You know, and Kendra and I have seen that in the past with individuals that if, if the, the people that we were talking to, if they were walking with God, they, were, they always wanted to be around us. If they weren't walking with God, they didn't want to be around. You know, so the people still are kind of stiff-necked. Not kind of, they are. They're still stiff-necked. When Moses comes down, they're terrified again. It may be kind of a revisitation of that rumbling on the mountain, the fire on the mountain. It's kind of like, mm, you know what? The golden calf didn't make us scared. They retreated. <clears throat> so Moses put a veil over his face. See, when, when we become, when we come closer to God, when we're drawn closer to God, and as we're walking with God, as we're, as we're striving to be obedient to God and speak the truth to people, we've heard Ben say this before, that that truth for some people is a pleasing aroma. You know, and they're like, oh, that's nice. And they're drawn to God. To other people, it's a stench. And it drives them away. Okay. Same thing that Moses is experiencing here. But as we think about this veil that covered Moses' shining face, what might the veil point to in the future? Is this a foreshadowing of something to come? Okay, I'm going to have to ask you to speak louder too. Scott can't hear you, but I've got hearing aids and I really can't hear you. I'm an old man and I'm deaf. So go ahead. Yeah, and so we need the new covenant. The old covenant's not going to last. And who is that new covenant? Jesus Christ. All right, we, we've gone to this before, but we see also that this, this veil over Moses' shining face is it's a it's a picture it's a foreshadowing of the greater unveiled realities through Jesus Christ and it's that covenant that that we spoke about now we've been directed to this passage in in the past we're going to go to it again tonight second corinthians 3 verse 12 we're going to read through chapter 4 verse 6 so turn to second corinthians 3 <clears throat> And we're going to see this connection again in a very real way. Second Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 12. 
We're going to read through chapter 4, verse 6. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yet to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open sight of God. I'm sorry, but by the statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Verse 15. To this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. The Israelites turn back to Moses. Their eyes are veiled again. When we turn back to our world-drawn temptations, and we give in to those, we're veiled. Our eyes are veiled. We dare not do that. If you turn back to Moses, to your worldly past, the veil is over your heart. That's verse 15. But you know what? That's not the end of the story. It's just a statement in the story. Verse 16 says, But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. We could ask for an amen on that one. You know, praise God. The veil is removed when we turn to Jesus Christ. There's no better word than that. We don't have to be tied to the old. We don't have to be tied to the world. We don't have to be tied to the altars that my dad built or that I built or that the world built that we just sometimes become comfortable with. We let those idols kind of sit next to us and we're like, eh, that's not too bad. God says, don't do it. Because when we do, we're going to eventually turn to it and our, our heart will be veiled. But it is through Jesus Christ that that veil is removed. As Ben stated several weeks ago, about a month ago now, the law of God, basically it's a, it's a one-trip car. 
Now, if you've got a trip you're going on, you buy a car, and it's guaranteed for that many miles, but no more, and you go, that one trip is to Jesus Christ. And then the car is useless, and that's what the law is. The law brings destruction after we've encountered Jesus Christ. If we turn back to the law, if we get back in that car, then there's destruction that always follows. To summarize, I've got really three points of summary. First of all, God is a jealous God. We see that very clearly. Secondly, God is the active agent for his people. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament. God is always the active agent for everything that takes place in the universe. God is the active agent for what takes place in our lives. And the third point, Jesus Christ removes the veil over our hearts to those who are God's chosen in order for us to see the truth. That's all I got. Because that's what God's word says. Um, any questions, any other thoughts about what we've seen in this tonight? That's true. Uh, well, Ben's going to be excited because I'm actually through before seven tonight. So let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we do bow before you and thank you that your word is true, that your word is revealed, and that through Jesus Christ, the veil over our hearts is removed so that we can behold your glory so that we can enjoy that glory so that we live in that glory and by your revealed word we share in that glory Father, help us as, at times, a stiff-necked people to turn back to you, to recognize what you've done for us, and not just take that for granted, not just to think, oh, that's nice, it's kind of cool, but to take that for what it is, and our response will be to worship you. Father, I pray as a people that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. Not just here. Not just when we're singing. 
with whoever's leading praise that morning, that afternoon, that evening, but that we worship you with every step that we take, every word that we speak, everything that we do would point to you. Father, it's my prayer that everything we do, everything that we say would glorify you, would bring you honor and praise. Father, help us worship you for who you are, not just for what you do. Father, I pray your protection over those who are here tonight, and I pray your blessings over every family represented. Father, for those in our fellowship who are not here tonight, I pray that you work in their lives in a very special way to help us as a people walk in a community boldly, walking in dominion, not walking in fear, but that our lives would testify to the greatness and the glory and the holiness of a God that created us and a Savior that called us and drew us. Father, I do thank you for loving us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen.